If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the 4th of our August 2011 editions. BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com for more information or follow us at twitter.com slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash BBC History Magazine. Coming up, we have... They thought of slavery as part of the air they breathed, and if they thought at all, they thought it was right. That was Paul Cartledge on slavery in the ancient world. They're heralded in the press for what they've done, and, they, and then they disappear from view. And I think he just felt that they deserved recognition and remembrance. That was John Price on Victorian heroism. Like so many parts of Britain, it's a small, beautiful village with global significance. And that was Dan Snow on Bewley. Our first interview is with Paul Cartledge, A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture at Cambridge University. He's written in the September issue of BBC History magazine about how democracy and slavery were closely related in the classical world. BBC History magazine deputy editor Rob Attar talked to him. 
Okay, Paul, so we're talking here about slavery in ancient Greece. Was this something that was practiced throughout the ancient Greek world? It was, and um, sadly, and from my point of view, it's sad to say that in some ways the Greeks actually invented a form of slavery. Greek world, as you know, was extremely diverse, very widely flung, but pretty much everywhere a form of servitude was practiced. And the one that we're most interested in, I think, today is the kind that the Athenians practiced, and historians call that chattel slavery, to mark out the type of slavery where people are actually treated as things, as commodities. They're bought and sold on a slave market. And so this is interesting because Athens, ancient Athens, as we know, is famed as the birthplace of democracy. So how could slavery fit in with that idea? You're absolutely right. And um, the issue is whether it's a paradox that you have the two together and it's just, as it were, coincidental, or is there some necessary connection? And there is a certain connection, that's to say an ideological connection. If you are free and if you are a citizen, and of course if you're male, and if you are a citizen of Athens when it's a democracy, you are extremely empowered. You therefore look around for others to judge yourself against, to set yourself off against. And the ultimate form, the opposite end of that spectrum of freedom and uh, unfreedom, is the chattel slave. And I think, therefore, there is a certain connection. When the Athenians first started importing chattel slaves in great numbers from the barbarian, the non-Greek world around the eastern part of the Aegean, they then freed themselves in the sense that they passed laws so that no Athenian could legally be made a slave in Athens. So there seems to be a direct connection between importing lots of non-Greek foreigners as slaves and making yourselves not able to be a slave in your own city. So you say that... um the slaves that they used were foreigners. How did they acquire these slaves? Was it through purchase or were they captured in military campaigns? They were captured in military campaigns, but not slave raids. In other words, we're not thinking of Greek traders going out there with force, military force, and then actually conquering or capturing slaves, such as happened, for example, in parts of West Africa. We're thinking of people who come onto the market because there have been wars between various non-Greeks. People who come onto the market because parents are poor and they actually sell their children into slavery because they know that there is a market in Greece. And there's one particular part of that world, and it's uh, modern Bulgaria, roughly. It was called Thrace in the ancient world. And that's where many of the slaves who found their way to Athens uh, started from. And they would come very young age, and um, one of the main uses to which such um, small um, children were brought for, to Athens for was actually to work in the silver mines, which was a major source of Athens's wealth. So they, they did all the kind of unpleasant jobs, I guess, that the Athenians wouldn't want to do themselves. You're absolutely right. And of course, there are lots of parallels uh, for that in many other parts of the world. But this was the most unpleasant job, working in the mines, um, very narrow galleys, very unpleasant, um, unhealthy, noxious fumes. And actually, you wouldn't last very long, I don't think. And a sort of early death might actually be quite um, pleasant rather than having to slog away down there. 
did any of the slaves have less onerous work to do, or were they all working down the mines? No, there was a spectrum of slavery as there was a spectrum of freedom, so that the very worst are the ones I've just mentioned, the mine slaves. But working your way up, if you were a domestic slave, you were a female and you worked with a, an Athenian citizen um, mistress, that might not be too bad. You might actually become a sort of friend, a confidence. Uh, if you were a male in the same situation, a domestic slave, then you might work on the farm, well, that would be hard work. And if your master went off to battle, then you'd be carrying his equipment, cooking for him, finding provisions for him. And again, you might strike up the sort of relationship that uh, we see on uh, the films and so on between a valet and his uh, uh, master, his employer. So um, it would be a great range. Then keep going up further and you get the most educated slaves, the most privileged slaves are the ones that were owned not by an individual master or mistress, but by the community, for example, the community of Athens as such. And these slaves performed the function of, for example, clerks in the courts. They would take records. They look after the state archives. And they would be relatively privileged, relatively well-educated. So it seems like these slaves were quite integral to the Athenian economy and society. Absolutely right. They're all over the place. You, you couldn't move very far without encountering one. And therefore, your sense of self, your identity as an Athenian would quite regularly be reinforced, defined in opposition to the presence of these non-Greeks who were unfree and yet essential to your way of life. Could a slave ever become free from servitude? Were they ever granted their freedom? There was the possibility of manumission. The interesting contrast here is between all Greek communities and Rome. Rome had a much more liberal attitude to freeing of slaves and to the treatment of ex-slaves. But yes, it could happen uh, in Greece. And one way in which Greek masters liberated their slaves was by a fictitious sale. They presented them to a god. And the most famous of these is Apollo at Delphi. If you go to Delphi and you look at the main temple of Apollo, Apollo, on the platform you'll find loads and loads of uh, names. And these are the names of slaves that their masters have come to Delphi and they've declared, I now free you, I sell you to Apollo. And of course it's a fictitious sale. And the ex-slaves would then, for a while, still be dependent on their former masters. Though free legally, they would economically still be dependent. They'd become a kind of client. Right. And, and were there any examples the other way around? Were people's children forced into slavery as well? Well, that, if they are ex-slaves, they are free and therefore their children would be free. And they might even, I mean, there are one or two cases in Athens, very, very exceptional, of a slave who, having been liberated, then becomes quite wealthy, makes a big donation to the city of Athens, in return for which the city of Athens, in gratitude, grants this person his um, citizenship. Very, very rare. So you, you do get a couple of cases. Foreigners come to Athens, they work actually for bankers, they're, they're freed, they take over the bank, and then they become uh, citizens through a special decree, a special grant. It, highly exceptional. If you were still a slave and you had a child born, would that child be born free or would they be born to slavery? No, absolutely. Slavery in Athens we're talking about. Now, there are different yeah. cities, of course, which had different regulations, such that if the father was free but the mother was slave, then the child would be free. Whereas in Athens, if uh, any party to a slave-free um, mating, any offspring of 
one parent that was a slave, that was it. You, you were a slave. Right. Um, and did any slaves revolt? Were there any slave rebellions? It's a, a very good question. Way late in the history of Athens, in other words, centuries after what people think of as the great period, the 5th, 4th centuries, uh, Pericles and uh, Plato and so on, way after, we do hear of just one revolt, and it was in the mines, and it was triggered by uh, revolts going on in another part of the Roman Empire, because by this time Athens is part of the Roman Empire, in Sicily. So it's quite exceptional. And in the classical period, the 5th, 4th centuries BC, we hear of no serious uprising that you could uh, dignify with the term revolt. And one reason for that is that these slaves came from many different parts of the barbarian, non-Greek world. And therefore, they weren't used to communicating with each other. And their mode of work, their places of work, the way in which they worked, didn't naturally bring them together. It would be very difficult for them to organise a revolt. And from the other side, were there any Athenians who felt the contradictions between the slaves and the Democrats so close together? Well, sadly, um, there is one instance of a civil war in which the slave population, this is on the island of Corsara, modern Corfu, decided to side with the Democrats in a civil war against um, oligarchs, people who believed that the few rich should rule, whereas Democrats believed that the majority who were poor should rule. So there's some suggestion that slaves thought they might get a better deal from Democrats than they would from oligarchs. I mean, whether they were right or not is another question. But um, nowhere else in the Greek world do we hear of such um, uh, a distinction. And so the Athenians themselves didn't, it wasn't on their conscience they had all these slaves doing all the unpleasant work, they just felt that was how it was. Well, sadly, in a way, I mean, I'm tempted to say that they thought of slavery as part of the air they breathed, and if they thought at all, they thought it was right. So most of them thought it was natural, and if they did think about it, then they thought it was right. There are one or two hints in, for example, a play of Euripides, um, one character says, well, no one actually is free uh, is so, sorry, enslaved or a slave by nature. They are only made slaves, so it's a question of custom rather than of nature. But this is a very isolated um, distinction, a different sort of point of view from the normal view. And sadly, and to my way sadly, um, Aristotle actually in his politics, he's the most famous uh, writer about Greek politics, including, of course, therefore Athens, says that uh, there are certain persons who are born to to be slaves. That is, it's in their nature to be servile, and it's good for them to be made slaves legally. And now, this idea of Athenian slavery, did that over subsequent centuries influence later slaveholders around the world? Very much so. Part of the, uh, for example, um, civil war in uh, the United States was a war of ideology. And since the founding fathers had partly based their notions of what uh, a free republic should be on ancient, more Roman, I have to say, than Greek uh, ideas and practices, they, that is the slaveholders, the southerners, did very frequently refer to ancient practice and uh, such statements as I've just quoted from uh, Aristotle. So I suppose they saw that these great philosophers of the past had legitimised slavery, so they felt there was nothing wrong with them doing it. This is absolutely right. It was part of the legitimation dialogue or debate, but there is actually um, a 
odd sort of reinforcement of their view. There is a very famous ancient uh, philosopher called Epictetus. His name literally in Greek means the purchased one. He was, in other words, by origin a slave, and he was uh, also a philosopher, and he was a Stoic philosopher. So if you're thinking back, well, if it was okay even for a slave to be a philosopher and to preach a form of um, philosophy which doesn't advocate the abolition of slavery then presumably the ancients were quite comfortable with the fact of slavery, and that was the sort of argument that uh, people used. And I suppose the slavery going on in the United States, the United States was quite similar, because that was also chattel slavery, wasn't it? The same as the it was. There are just um, half a dozen societies that we know in the world's history that have practiced this extreme form of slavery, chattel slavery, where the person is wholly owned as a, a mere good, a mere thing. And the United States practiced that kind. But of course, what they did was import their slaves very, very long distance from, in particular, West Africa. And so the distance between them, they didn't need to worry that they were enslaving people very like themselves. Part of slavery is that the slave is an outsider to the community into which the slave is brought, that there is therefore a radical separation in terms of family relationships, in terms of culture, history, between you, the dominant person, and the slave that you're importing. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. That was Professor Paul Cartledge of Cambridge University. You can read his feature, Democrats and Slaves, in the September issue of BBC History magazine. He's also edited, along with Keith Bradley, The Cambridge World History of Slavery, Volume 1, The Ancient Mediterranean, and that's published this year. Now, next, I've been talking to John Price, lecturer in modern history at Goldsmiths College, University of London. He is author of Postman's Park, G.F. Watts' Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice, which is part of his research into the Victorian concept of everyday heroism. The first question I asked him was, what exactly do you mean by everyday heroism in the Victorian period? 
Well, my, my sort of classification uh, of everyday heroism is taken very much from um, the ideas of George Frederick Watts, who was a Victorian artist, uh, portrait painter, and he coined the phrase in around about 1887 when he was talking about um, civilian bravery in the context of single acts of civilian bravery. So he was talking about people who perhaps ran into a burning building, um, jumped into a canal, in order, basically in order to save life. People who had, who had risked their own life um, in order to try and save somebody else's life. Um, in the Victorian period there were other discourses around the idea of everyday heroism. Uh, things like surviving on a very low income or um, sort of um, giving up your own free time to help somebody else uh, better their life. So this idea of sort of self-sacrifice in a broader sense was sometimes referred to as sort of everyday heroism. But for me personally, in my research, I tend to focus in more on these, these um, dramatic single acts of bravery that are undertaken by relatively ordinary people going about their everyday life, faced with an incident that required them to be brave, undertaking that bravery, and then sort of asking what society did with them afterwards. How did it reward them? Um, if they died, how did it commemorate them? Um, and things like that. So it, it, for me, it's that, it's that single dramatic act that, that comes out of nowhere into someone's life mm. uh, and what happens in the aftermath, really. So who was, who was Watts and why was he so interested in this? Um, George Frederick Watts was, was a very interesting character. Um, he was best known probably for his large-scale sort of allegorical paintings, um, Hope being one of the, the most famous, uh, picked up by Barack Obama in his, in his campaign, his uh, presidential campaign. Um, I think there was a cartoon. I think Obama referred to, to Watts' painting of Hope in relation to his own book about the audacity of hope and this mm. idea. Um, but Watts basically is known for these big allegorical paintings, but also as a portrait artist, he has a, a, a collection of portraits, or there is a collection of his portraits in the National Portrait Gallery. And he's also somebody who had a very keen sense of a social conscience. Uh, I think you could probably describe him as being in the sort of um, didactic middle-class mould of, of somebody who wanted, wanted society to be a better place, wanted uh, a fairer society, a more egalitarian sort of society. And um, this carried over into some of his paintings. He painted a series of, of social commentary paintings, uh, highlighting things like prostitution and the plight of the poor and the plight of the destitute. So he had this keen sense of, of social... Um, sort of social fairness and well-being. And, and coming through from his letters and his diaries is just this sense that he gets, he, it just captures his imagination. He reads about these, these people in the newspapers, these everyday heroes, and he says in one of his letters, you know, they, they appear in the press fleetingly, they're, they're heralded in the press for what they've done, and, they, and then they disappear from view. And I think he just felt that they deserved more, they deserved, they deserved um, recognition and remembrance. But of course, for Watts, there was, a, there was this, this vehicle, they were also a vehicle for moral instruction. So there was that other level. He wanted them to be remembered, but he wanted also to use them as a, as a tool, if you like, in society to say to other people, look at what society's capable of. Look at what ordinary people are capable of in our society. What a, what a, what a great society we live in. We should all be like these people. So for Watts, they kind of served two purposes, I think. Okay, so the, 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 you know when he was reading these reports in the newspaper, what sort of things are we talking about there? They really are just these these relatively 
In the Victorian period, relatively um, commonplace incidents, so for instance, um, th there's the presence of a lot more open water in that, in that period, so canals, lakes, ponds, um, so much of that has kind of been filled in <clears throat> in modern day. But in Watts's period, in, in the Victorian period, urban open water was much more common, so you had a lot more, and, and of course swimming instruction was, you know, less people could swim, heavier clothing, so drownings and, and incidents of people drowning or falling into water was, was quite prominent. So people jumping into other, into water to save other people was common. Things like uh, runaway horses, again very common in the urban environment, uh, horses getting uh, scared and, and bolting, uh, running out of control in the streets, uh, domestic fires, um, you know, that sort of thing. The kind of stuff, it, this, this wasn't sort of the imperial model of heroism. This was very much things that cropped up in everyday life. People, people knew people whose houses had caught fire or people who'd fallen in, in the canal. So it was much more of a, something that came into people's lives. It, just sort of fairly commonplace things. Um, what's the imperial model of heroism? Well, I would argue the imperial model of heroism is, is kind of what historians have, have focused in on. Um, the historiography um, for 19th century heroism has tended to, I would say, um, shift more towards looking at, at military and imperial great men of history. Um, some of that is to do with the source material, that the military and imperial incidents um, are more commonly... Um, there's more evidence about them. I mean, we're thinking of people like Gordon, uh, General Gordon, Havelock, Napier, um, to some degree later on, <clears throat> people like Scott, uh, Captain Scott, um, and also sort of imperial adventurers, people like Livingston. So these, these big characters in history who went off and did very brave things um, in exotic places for high moral purposes or for sort of global purposes. Those are the people that I think historians have tended to focus on, and I would refer to that as the sort of imperial or military model of heroism. Okay, so going back to your everyday heroism then, were there, was Victorian Britain a more dangerous place than today? Were there more opportunities for people to be heroic? And you, know, you don't read about it so much in the papers today of, of someone doing something you know, notably heroic. This is something I get asked quite a lot, and it's a difficult question to answer, but on one level, as I've said, uh, with, with regard to open water. And obviously, if you think about industry, the kinds of heavy industry that we had, no health and safety legislation, um, oil lighting, candles. In, in some ways, Victorian society is a much more precarious place where there is probably more opportunity for incident or accident. So, yes, on one level, you could argue that working in an unregulated uh, steel uh, sort of steel factory or a foundry back in the Victorian period when there was so little uh, health and safety idea. Um, yes, things were much more dangerous. Conversely, I'm not sure that that necessarily means that there was more opportunity for heroism. And this is where the divide between life-saving and heroism, I think, becomes important. This idea that, for instance, you can save life in an accident without necessarily being particularly heroic so just because a society is more dangerous doesn't necessarily mean that it will stimulate more heroism. An example being if you were walking along a, a canal towpath and someone fell in and you witnessed that and you got hold of a life belt and you threw the life belt in and you stayed on the bank and you pulled them in and pulled them out of the water, I think most people would accept perhaps that you'd saved their life. 
but I'm not sure that people would necessarily consider you to be tremendously heroic. Whereas, of course, if there's no life belt and you die, you know, diverge, diverge yourself of your clothing and dive into the water and thrash around with the person and you know, forcibly bring them to the side and, and drag them out um, and put your own life at risk at the same time, I think people start then to think of that in terms of being heroic. So a more dangerous society does not necessarily generate more acts of heroism, although it perhaps does provide more opportunity for incidents where heroism could be performed. It's a complicated answer, but it's a, it is a I think heroism is a complicated concept that, that I think we all think we know immediately what it is, but then when we're actually challenged about it and asked to think about it, we realise it's much more complicated than we first thought. Okay, so, so Watts was reading these reports in the newspaper thinking something must be done to, to commemorate these people. What did he do? What he did was, in 1887, he writes a letter to the Times newspaper and he says, um, it's the Queen's Golden Jubilee. There was lots of discourse at the time about what should be done to celebrate the Queen's Golden Jubilee. Um, and Watts was a great believer that a lot of these everyday acts of everyday heroism that he'd been reading about were a product of the Victorian reign. They were about how great the nation had become under, under Queen Victoria and that um, by reflecting and promoting what these people had done, it would reflect on, on, on the, the country itself and it would be a celebration. So what he said was basically, as part of the Jubilee um, celebrations, we should erect a, a grand monument to these people and put their names up on some monument and dedicate it to the Golden Jubilee so that everybody can not only see these people and remember them, but can link that in their minds to this, the, this you know, fantastic reign of this, of this great ruler. Um, so that's what he says in the Times. He says, let's put up a statue to these people. Um, but, but nothing really comes of it. Not in 1887, anyway. Right, OK. So what happens next? Um, he keeps the idea alive in his mind. As if you look through a lot of his papers, he writes to a lot of people. He's continually talking about this idea of, of doing something with these, these so-called everyday heroes. But also what he does is he employs a cuttings, a newspaper cuttings agency, to start taking cuttings from the press every time an incident crops up. And he gets sent all these cuttings, and he basically pastes them into a big sort of scrapbook and he starts to transcribe some of them and the Watts Gallery in, um, in uh, down near Guildford which has just recently reopened after a, I think it's 11 million pound refurbishment a fantastic place they've got a very small archive and part of that is the paperwork relating to Watts's obsession if you like with everyday heroism and, and they've got reams and reams of these pages where he's copied out these stories from the press and he's sort of He's, he's catalogued them into different sections of the country, incidents that happened in counties, incidents that happened in the water. You know, he's he's mm. categorised them by place, by incident, by person, by age, by all sorts of things. He was really quite obsessed with the idea. So it carries on in his mind um, from 1887. It's there before. I mean, there's letters as early as 1860 where he's mentioning to people that he wants to do this. 1887, 1887 he makes the idea public. And then nothing really happens, although he keeps talking to people about it, until around about 1880, about 1899, 98, 99. And what happens then? He basically gets this invitation to, um, to um, undertake this memorial idea in a place called Postman's Park, which is a, a small um, public park just by the side of St. Botolph's Church, just on the edge of the city of London not far from St Paul's Cathedral, if you know the area, St Paul's and the Museum of London. Uh, a little tiny green space nestling in the city. And um, they basically, the, the church acquires some land. They're looking to promote this new land in the park. 
one thing leads to another. Somebody says to Watts, would you like to use our land for your monument? And, and Watts goes ahead, and what he, he basically does is, out of his own pocket, he funds the building of, of what can best be described as, a, as a, a sort of a wooden cloister, like a sort of covered way, if you like, um, to protect a, a stretch of wall in the park. And what Watts does is he has these ceramic tablets made that he, has, he puts up on the wall as a memorial to, to these everyday heroes. And that forms the basis of this memorial that he's been obsessed with for all these years. And what do these tablets tend to say? Mrs Smith died? Sort of, yeah. It's along those lines. Um, because Watts has been keeping these, these transcripts, he's got all these facts and dates and, and names of, of these incidents. And these form the basis of these tablets. Um, I call them tablets. They're essentially ceramic tiles. Um, the reason Watts used ceramic tiles was because he was quite good friends with um, William de Morgan, who at the time was a, a very, um, very well-known ceramics manufacturer of, and designer of ceramics, and they were good friends. And it, I think it just worked out cheaper and easier for Watts to have ceramic made than to have stone um, engraved. So he has these really quite ornate um, decorative tablets made out of tiles. Um, they're about, I, I suppose, about half a metre by a quarter of a metre in, in, in size. And, um, and basically they have a short descriptive uh, transcription of what happened. So, for instance, there's a, a, a tablet, one of the sort of most famous tablets is, is to a person called Alice Ayres. To give you some idea, what it says about Alice Ayres is the inscription, I'll, I'll read it as it, as, it, as it stands. Alice Ayres, daughter of a bricklayer's labourer, who by intrepid conduct saved three children from a burning house in Union Street Borough at the cost of her own young life, April the 24th, 1885. And that is kind of the pattern of most of the tablets. They tell you who the person was. They quite often tell you what they did for a living, which I think is important from Watts's perspective. They, um, they tell you a very brief description of what the person did uh, and the date and area in which the incident took place. The, the key thing with the... What, what this monument is known as now is the Watts Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice. And the key uniting factor with all these tablets is that the people all died. Every, everybody who features on the monument died as a result of what they did. Now, a lot of the people that I study don't die. They do something heroic, and society recognises them for that, gives them a medal, gives them a certificate. With the Watts Memorial, everybody is significant because they died doing the act that they're remembered for. So I think that makes it as an added layer, if you like, of heroism to these cases. And I, I can still go and have a look at this memorial It's today. still there, yes. It's, um, it's in, as I say, Postman's Park, which is just off King Edward Street, um, halfway between, if you come out of St Paul's Tube Station, um, walk towards the Museum of London, it's just off King Edward Street on the left. It's still there. Um, it's, it's looking a tiny bit shabby at the moment. Um, we're working at the moment with the Watts, well, I'm working and some, some colleagues are working in co collaboration with the Watts Gallery to try and set up a, a, friends, a sort of friends organisation to help protect and promote the monument and the park uh, because at the moment it, it, it's in need of some renovation works so we're trying to sort of publicise the, the, the monument and, and just get people, I, I challenge anybody to go there uh, and not be moved by it. I think there are, well there's recently been one new tablet added, I think that will probably be the last, the last edition now, um, but um, there are uh, 60, well, 64 different, there's uh, 54 tablets to around about 60 odd people 
And, um, you know, they're just very, very moving stories of people who made the ultimate sacrifice um, trying to save somebody else's life. So I challenge anyone to go there and not be moved by it. And did the idea pick up? Did anyone else make any similar monuments? There are some, nothing as grand as this, nothing as all-encompassing. What you tend to get is in local communities, again, in my, the research for my, um, for my PhD thesis, um, I did some research on, on other mo monuments and memorials, and all I could find were, and I, I did look quite extensively, I spent a lot of time talking to local archives and museums and libraries and, and various local organisations, I managed to find another 11 um, monuments but they tend to be individual monuments in local communities to specific individuals who died within that community doing something heroic. So, for instance, in Newark-on-Trent, there's a, a, an obelisk in the town square to a, a young nursemaid called um, Ethel Harrison. Yes, and, and she basically uh, died um, trying to save her, one of the children in her, in her care for, who fell into a canal. Um, and... Um, and you know, they, they got a subscription together and they, and they put this monument up. But it's quite unusual and, and there's nothing quite as extensive as, as Watts's project. Okay. Um, in conclusion, um, what does all this tell us about sort of the nature of Victorian society? How does it inform us about how people lived at the time? I think what comes across, one of the things that comes across is that this idea of everyday heroism was quite significant and quite important to people. Um, Watts wasn't the only person who, who did something about it. There was a, a lot of organisations between around about 1860 um, and up to, up to 1914, which is the period that, that I'm most interested in. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's certainly there's, there's state involvement. Um, the Albert Medal um, is instituted, which is the first state sanctioned medal for civilian gallantry. There's a number of private organisations who, who uh, commemorate um, these acts of heroism, like the Royal Humane Society. Uh, Andrew Carnegie sets up a, a Carnegie Hero Fund. So this is it's quite a significant discourse in Victorian society. And I think some of that stems from it being um, a self-sacrificial act. It's about this Victorian um, idea of people uh, making a sacrifice for other people to build a better society. Uh, I think for Watts, it was certainly a question of the reason he focuses in largely on, on ordinary people and quite often working class people is in this belief that, that um, exemplary models, if you like, uh, exemplary characters and models should reflect or, or appeal to their audience because they're a bit like them or because things that they do take place in a similar environment. So, so I think everyday heroism is embedded in this Victorian idea of, of self-help, of um, self-sacrifice, uh, of sort of civic duty, and for Watts it becomes uh, a tool by which, and, and lots of associates of Watts do the same thing, they want to offer these everyday heroes back into the working class community as an example of, of how, how they can you know, be better citizens. So it feeds into ideas about citizenship as well. Um, all very Victorian ideas. So it's not really surprising, I don't think, to see it as such a powerful discourse in this period. 
That was John Price. His book, Postman's Park, G.F. Watts' Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice, can be purchased at the Watts Gallery in Guildford. And the URL for that is wattsgallery.org.uk and at the Museum of London, and it's priced at £10. Lastly this week, I've been chatting with historian and TV presenter Dan Snow, who's fronting the BBC One history series National Treasures Live. For five weeks, this show is touring the country, coming live from some of Britain's finest heritage sites. I asked him to preview the fourth episode. Yeah, we're off to Bewley for the fourth in the series. And it's obviously a, well, where, where is Bewley? Bewley's in the New Forest on the south coast. A fa- I mean, a town, a village with a lot of history, as they say in America. Mm. Um, it is sort of from, from incredibly important Iron Age finds, Roman settlement, uh, to the high medieval period. The abbey was built there. Um, then in the, the early modern period, Bewley became briefly this great port that was hoping to um, bring sugar back from the from the new world. But unfortunately, the complicated geopolitics of the Caribbean, the plate shifted, and the islands that Bewley was hoping to bring the sugar back were captured by the Spanish or the French, so that sort of rotted on the vine. But, of course, very near Bewley and Butler's Hard, which is sort of on the Bewley River, um, many of Nelson's Nelson's uh, ships and ships of the line of frigates were built. Right. So um, it, it, it's, a, it's a small village. Like so many parts of Britain, it's a small, beautiful village with global significance. Yeah. And there are ships uh, that were launched at Bewley in the early 19th century. For example, one of them is sunk on the River Plate in, in South America. You know, that, the, 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 our global reach... Um, the global significance of what happened in this little island is, is nowhere better summed up than Bewley. And, of course, it also is the home to the classic uh, motor car museum. Now, cars aren't really my thing, but people love cars. I mean, I've been there a few times. It's a great place to take my nephews. And there are grown men in there with tears in their eyes looking at those Rolls Royces and all these other cars. So I just thought that'd be an interesting place. There is an anniversary of the motor car this year, 125 years. I thought it'd be a good place to go and, again, establish that that is history. You know, that's, uh, these things that people think of and enjoy visiting and taking part in it's wonderful history the history of communications and transport um, in the last two centuries is absolutely central to to the the human experience so um, it's going to be it'll be fun and they're going to drive cars around and uh, and there's obviously it is itself a very beautiful setting as well Okay, sounds good. What other things are you looking at there? Well, we've got Larry Lamb, the EastEnders, the EastEnder, who is obsessed with cars. He's going to come down, but he's also spotted this um, music hall in Stepney, which is Britain's last sort of proper music hall. And he's asking, you know, where did the music hall go? What happened with Vaudeville? And I think that's just such a wonderful story. And it's something that was so uh, axiomatically British hundred years ago and now it's completely disappeared and, and, and it's a, just a, it'd be a wonderful thing to explore okay. and then I'm going to be travelling around slightly bizarrely I'm going to travel around with the hairdresser a celebrity hairdresser called Michael Douglas who left school at 15 came from Preston and he and I are good friends and he's always been on at me to take him and show him some history so we, 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 we got a camper van and we drove around the UK looking at some uh, some sites and I attempted to answer some big questions for him about British history. And this week we're looking at why on earth the Romans came here. He's, right. he's, he's unconvinced that Britain was a desirable destination for the Romans. And I'm, I had to change his mind. I tell him actually it was a, a fantastic place to, for them to come. It made a lot of sense for them to invade and occupy large parts of Britain. And, uh, and, and I had to also say why that matters. You know, why what happened 2,000 years ago actually matters in our day-to-day lives. So where did you take him? What, what Roman glories did you Well, have? I took him uh, to York. We looked at the uh, Iber, or the Iberan 
Arkham, the sort of HQ of Roman military power in the north of England. We went up to Hadrian's Wall, obviously, uh, and I explained, we took him into Scotland, I explained the Romans actually pushed beyond Hadrian's Wall, through the Antonine Wall, um, between what is now Glasgow and Edinburgh. So, um, no, we took him all over the shop. I also took him down to Portchester Castle, which, of course, has its Roman walls there still. So, crisscrossing the UK in the 1980s camper van that broke down, very annoyingly, a lot. <laughs> well, the Romans wouldn't have had that, would they, with their straight roads and their, uh, and their good transport network? Exactly. That episode of National Treasures Live is on Wednesday the 31st of August, 7.30pm, BBC One. Do get in touch if you have any comments on the podcast, particularly if you've got any ideas about how we can improve the programme, or if you'd like to query or disagree with anything our interviewees have said. Email podcast at historyextra.com, or get in touch via Twitter on twitter.com slash historyextra, or facebook.com slash historyextra. Next week, we'll have the abolition of slavery and the history of migraines, plus Dan Snow's last update. Frankly, you don't get that esoteric a mix anywhere else. You'd be mad not to listen in. <laughs> <laughs>